Hello, hello. Welcome to the VBAC link. This is Megan Heaton, and we have Ashley here with you. Can I just tell you, she's amazing, and you're going to want to listen to this episode like 5 million times. And then when you're done listening to it 5 million times, you're going to want to go check out her Instagram and watch all of her videos 5 million more times because <laughs> she is amazing and such a wealth of knowledge. And we reached out and said, Hey, like we want to share your story on the podcast. Like we think it's going to be an amazing episode, but I don't think I know it's going to be an amazing episode. So before we do that, I'm going to get a review as per usual. Um, and remind you that if you would like to relieve a review, we are on Google, Apple podcasts. You can email us, shoot us a message on Instagram. We love to add your reviews into the queue and read them on the podcast. This specific review is from Anna Neves, and it says, I've been preparing for my VBAC ever since my C-section, and listening to the stories in this podcast has not only taught and informed me all about the different options, but also inspired me. I know that when the time comes, I will be prepared and feel the power of the great and courageous people who shared their stories here. Oh, I love it. The great and courageous people. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Thank you so much for sharing your review. And like I said, if you have a review to share and you want us to know how you feel about the podcast and all of these great and courageous people, please leave us a review. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Okay. Ashley. <laughs> so excited that you are here. And it's kind of an interesting, like between like from now on recording, we've had Australian people on the podcast a lot. And it warms my heart and makes me so happy and makes me feel like I probably need to go to Australia now. Um, because one, I am obsessed with all the knowledge that you guys have on birth. And I actually really like the way birth is in Australia in a lot of ways, but I just, am so honored that you're here with us. So honored. thank you. Yeah. I am so excited to be here. That was such a beautiful, warm welcome. So thank you very much for having me. Yes. Oh my gosh. Like I'm serious. People like, you're just gonna like I just love listening to you too. Like I love like I just love <laughs> your guys' accent. Like oh, my Utah accent is pretty lame. Um <laughs> but yeah, so let's turn the time over to you. I am so excited because I feel like I've heard like little things, but I'm excited to just hear it right now with you. Go ahead. Okay, so let's start from the first babe then. So I went into mm-hmm. the basically I went into that one just expecting I was going to have a vaginal birth because my mum had had vaginal births, all the women before me. Mm -hmm. And my mum had had me in seven hours. I was the first baby, my sister in two. And so I just thought like mum said, you know, if you have medication, you're weak and you just got to suck it it up. So I had Uh. this like, she can do it. I can do it. I had this like, 
I'll have an epidural if I need it sort of vibe. Right. And a lot of my friends that had babies before me, they had uh, children when they were like 17, 18. Okay. By the time I had mine, I was, you know, 28. I was newly married and I had watched all my friends. And so they told me all their birth stories and things. And so they'd all had vaginal births. I thought that cesarean birth was really for celebrities basically because mm-hmm. when I was in high school it was like posh spice I mean we're having the c-sections and uh, things like that and I was like <laughs> oh it's like a trendy thing to do it wasn't something that normal people did it was like an expensive thing that rich yeah. people did you know like in Brazil that's yeah. how it's in Brazil right like you are high class if you have cesareans yeah, yeah. and I mean, I went to the GP before I got pregnant, checked on my levels, made sure. I have always been high BMI. So the doctor said to me, you know, you better, like the only thing I would recommend is that you lose some weight because you might struggle to conceive. And so I went in knowing that there may be a a hardship there. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the women in my workplace at the time had had multiple miscarriages. My Mm mother-in-law had had seven before my husband and, Wow. So I went in with that kind of, you know, we'll see what happens, but it could take a while. Yeah. And so I conceived the first month of trying and that was a shock, but also so super exciting, exciting, super yes. exciting. I was, it was a month before my wedding. So I got sick just after my wedding for my honeymoon and <laughs> all the fun games. And after that, I was just like a sloth dying mm. because I got HG. <laughs> Oh, I got HD no. and it was just 20 weeks of basically a challenge and yeah, miserable. It was hard. And I was so excited to be a mom. There was so, I was, couldn't wait from the time I conceived to birth the baby and have the baby in my arms. I, that's all I wanted. And yeah. I went to the hospital. Um, you know, there was a bit of a mix up between I went to the GP and had the GTT test for gestational diabetes and mm-hmm. doctor told me that I didn't have it. And I went to a hospital because that's what they do. You go to a GP and they just send you to the local public hospital. And that's the one that you're allowed to go to. Mm-hmm. They don't really discuss any other avenues like private or midwives or home births or anything like that. And so I went excitedly to my first appointment. I waited for over an hour and I saw some random junior obstetrician. And they said to me, you've got gestational diabetes, so you'll be seeing us. And I was like, no, I don't. I don't have gestational diabetes. And I, yes, you do. She said, and I burst out crying and there was this big thing. And basically the difference was if I had birthed or if I'd gone to the hospital in Brisbane, which is uh, just the next suburb over, I wouldn't have had gestational diabetes. But in the mm. hospital that I went to, they were up with the times with the lower numbers oh, because boy. that was cycling at the moment. It was 2014. Okay. I had gestational diabetes and that meant that I had so many more appointments. It meant that I was only with obstetricians. It meant that I had to go to nutrition or dietitian. It was just so many appointments. It was out of control. And from a very early stage, I was told you're going to be induced. And Mm. you're going to be on insulin from the very, as soon as I was diagnosed, I was told you're going to be on medication. There was no, Mm. let's see how this, yeah, let's see how this unroll unravels. And we're not going to start you on the pill. We're just going to go straight to insulin for you. So it was kind of like they'd already decided my fate. Mm. I was really excited to have an induction. 
it meant that I got a date for my baby and I was going right. to have my baby early. And when I spoke to the other ladies in the um, GD who were getting induced, the lady said to me, it's all good. I was mm. induced and I had my baby in five hours. And I was like, Whoa. awesome. <laughs> Great. Awesome. I don't up. know what number baby that was for her. <laughs> yeah. Because when it comes to induction, I know now that it really matters on whether mm-hmm. it's your second, that if you've had a vaginal birth before, then an induction probably isn't going to, you know, land you in a C section. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I ended up uh, getting my day coming into hospital. Having no discussion about, I kept on asking, can we have the birth discussion? It was always next week, next week, next week. There was no discussion about what happens in birth or really what to expect or any niceties or anything. It always felt quite cold and Mm. just like the people didn't even want to be there, the junior obstetricians. It was kind of like they were doing their time sort of thing and it was like they were I don't, you know, it just wasn't a pleasant experience. I was expecting yeah. my first baby and I just felt it wasn't like warm and number. fuzzy at all. That's for sure. No, yeah. I just felt like it didn't feel right. It just felt like really not nice. Yeah. And impersonal. Yeah, exactly. And I basically went in for my induction and my husband came in with me. And that was a couple of days of having gels and people putting their fingers up and continued monitoring and just very uncomfortableness. Mm -hmm. And I found after they'd done all of that process that my cervix was right shut up. It wouldn't open up. And they said, okay, well, we're going to try and put the um, balloon in there now. Uh And that was the most excruciating pain. Especially when you're not dilated. It was excruciating. And I was in so much pain. The doctor and midwife made out that I was making a big fuss mm. because I was responding that it was painful. And so they gave me a lot of gas and mm-hmm. I was pretty much tripping out and I was just, it was really trippy. and Like nitrous uh, oxide? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. And I just felt like if this is how painful it is to put this thing in, mm-hmm. how painful is labor going to be? Yeah. How am I going to handle that? if I've just been through like two days of this mm-hmm. and I think that I had a, a cannula in my hand as well, because I couldn't really go to the bathroom without assistance from my husband. And mm. it was really getting uncomfortable. I had something up inside me and or poking just, you or something. Yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so another night in the hospital, we slept and then they said, if it doesn't open and it doesn't drop out by the morning, then we'll talk about it. And so I wasn't allowed to eat. I had to fast and that's going to serve your body. Well, I know it's really cool. It's like, they give you so much amazing care in the hospital to set you up for this amazing birth. And I woke up and it was still in there and nothing had changed. And I felt really defeated and I felt uh, like my body was broken. Like there was something wrong with me. Nobody had ever discussed or told me that there's a, a high failure rate for this or that this procedure can fail or you may not be a great candidate for this procedure. Mm-hmm. And so or more time, more time can make you a different, you know, statistically candidate, like raise your Bishop score. Yeah, exactly. So they obviously did the Bishop score 
and they would have seen that I was not a good candidate for this. They would have known that when they did all these things to me. And now I see that as like, my body is so amazing that you tried to do all this stuff to my body and my body was like, hell no. Nope. I'm (laughs) I'm keeping this baby in. I am shut. Yeah. And, uh, but the doctor came in the junior doctor and she said, look, we recommend that you come in tomorrow for more monitoring, go home and come back on Monday and we'll start the process again. And I was like, what do you mean you're going to start the process again? This was really torturous. Mm -hmm. I don't want to come. I said, what's the difference between a day or two? My body's not going to respond any differently. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I just come back in two weeks? Because I'm 38 weeks at this point, right? And I'm like, I'm not even 40 weeks. Can I come back in two weeks when I'm and actually a first in labor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because my mum had me and my sisters right on 40 weeks. And so I'm mm-hmm. just expecting the same. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, you can't. And I was like, oh, okay. She said, no, you can't do that. And I said, okay. She said, you know what? We're just about to have an obstetrician meeting. So I'll go in there and I'll ask the consultants what they think and I'll come back with a plan. Okay, I said, you know, because she did also talk about my option being a cesarean on the Monday. And I said to her, look, I'm going to be honest with you. There's no way in hell you're going to get me to come in for an elective surgery. It's just not going to happen. I never wanted to birth like that and I don't want to. Mm-hmm. And she came back and she said, they obviously spoke about what I'd said and they made formulated a plan to, you know, push me in the the way they thought that. I was mm-hmm. going to bend the most. And so they said, look, we've bumped all the surgeries for the day and we're going to book you in as first as priority because we feel like you should be having this baby now. And I was kind of like, okay. And so they booking, they're like bumping all these surgeries. It's like people sitting out in the waiting room waiting to have their babies, but they're going to bump me to have my baby first. And I thought I had my sister in the room who was a surgery nurse who had been pushing me to have surgery the whole time because she was like traumatized. Yeah. I'd been fighting her the way through like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to have a vaginal birth. And so I was so exhausted that I probably, and my husband only had five days off work. And so he had to return in a couple of days. He had my in-laws at my house babysitting my dog. And it just, I, you know, I, I was promised a baby and I feel like, at that point, I was just like, okay, well, if that's what you think, then yeah. okay, I'll do it. Yeah. And yeah. I signed this like three-page waiver form, by the way, which I was like really scared of. I was like, what am I doing? What things. am I signing? Yeah. My, and my sister's getting me prepared. Like she just finished a sh- shift from working upstairs in nursing and she organized for herself to get in there. So it was going to be my husband and her, which they never allow like a third person, but because she worked there and knew people, she was able to weasel in and she's getting me ready like a good nurse. Like she's so excited. She gets to be part of it. And I'm just like recording a video of like, if I die, tell my baby, I love my baby. I am so petrified. I've got like video and photos and I just look at the photo and it's like me trying to look excited, but actually I'm like, holy crap, this is really scary and I don't want to do this. And why is everybody so excited and I'm terrified? (laughs) And why is no one talking to me about this? Yeah. Yeah. They're not getting getting the knife, but I am. But 
it's really scary if you've never had surgery. I mean, it's right. not something that we do every day and it's not something that I've ever no. gone through before. Right. So off I go into surgery and, you know, it's really good that my sister's there because she gets to take a lot of photos and she gets to be part of it. Right. And I also be some felt, comfort maybe. Yeah, I felt like they would step up a bit as well because they knew that there was one of their own in there and this is yeah. I'm one of their own. And um, she took a load of photos and things like that. And But when they were doing the spinal, my, no one can be in the room. And I just remember feeling so petrified and shaking and mm-hmm. uh, looking to this big man's eyes who was holding me and thinking, you look like a nice man, you know, yeah. keep me safe. And um, this, mid- this midwife came around. She's like, you look like a deer in headlights. And I'm like, because there's like, all these lights, lights shining down at me yeah. and I'm in this crazy room Cold with room. like surgery stuff and it's, I'm really scared. I'm petrified. But I went through the whole process and, you know, the obstetrician and everyone, it was Christmas time. It was early Christmas. It was December the 5th and they were all having their Christmas party that night. So they were all very happy talking about their Christmas party. You going to the Christmas party? I'm going to Christmas party. And I thought, well, they're not fast. They're not stressed. They're very happy. They're starting their day. I'm the first one. They're excited about the Christmas party. It didn't feel very personal. I definitely didn't feel included in the process. They were just talking amongst colleagues and eventually. So relate. So relate. (laughs) It's horrible. Yeah. They were talking about the snow outside and how depressing it was because they just got, the one just got back from Hawaii. He's like, oh, yeah. I came back to snow. I'm like, I'm kind of right here. Like, what, can we talk about my baby? Yeah. Can we talk about me? <laughs> it's very impersonal. I mean, it's one thing yeah. at the dentist for them to be chatting. I don't mind it at the dentist if they're I chatting know, or something, orthodontist or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I thought at least they're calm. You know, I'm looking for signs. Yeah. And the baby was born in no time and, and then, you know, announced it's a baby girl and, I just thought, oh, can I go to sleep now? You know, I don't, I'm not really interested in this. I'm very mm. tired. I'm shaking. This is not a great experience. Yeah. I just, I just turned around and said, can I go to sleep? I don't want to hold the baby. It's uncomfortable, anyways. But I can't yeah. really hold the baby. I'm uh, shaking, and I've, I mean, I've never had that many drugs in my system before. You know, and off to recover, we 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 go basically, and you know, that's a new experience as well. Yep. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't a great postpartum experience in the hospital. It's, it was quite a very negative experience with the night mm. midwives. Um, so I was really excited to get out. I basically, with um, I left a day early because oh. I just did not want to have to put up with the night stuff. So my husband wasn't allowed to stay. And oh, why? So in our hospital, in the public system, some of them have got like four or five to a room. And so I was in like a four or five oh, to a room really? and they don't allow husbands to stay. So I couldn't get Whoa. in and out of bed. I, I know. know that. That's yes. like old school. It is old school. And they're getting like a lot of them are getting upgraded now because obviously it's better if you have your own room and stuff, but right. That's where I was lumped in that. And no one wants to birth there because no one wants to share a room. But if you're in the catchment, that's where you get stuck. So <laughs> unless you've got private. So um, he got booted out at 10 o'clock at night. And then I was left with this witch of a midwife who 
Um, every time my baby cried, she's like, oh, look, you're just going to have to sleep with the baby on your belly because I can't be coming back here coming oh. to get your baby all the time. And I was like, but it's not guidelines. I'm not allowed to sleep with my baby on my chest yeah. and I can't sleep and it's stressing me out. Like in my head I'm saying those things. But, right. yeah, it was, it was just horrific. And the next morning my husband came and I was like, letting loose at him we were having big I was like rah, rah, why weren't you here bah, the baby hasn't slept rah, rah. like I was so stressed I mean think about yeah. it I've been awake for like three days having these been in hospital for a long time and then I've gone and had major surgery mm-hmm. and you're like left on your own with this baby with barely any support no one telling you what to do trying to yeah. breastfeed with your nipples getting ripped pretty off pretty much by the way. abandoning you yeah ba- like basically so the second night I stayed and sorted that out and then I went I went home the next day. I did have a bit of a thing with the midwife. She was on again. So I ran down to the oh. bathing room and I hid from her because I, I was so, okay, so one thing you should know about me is I'm a highly sensitive person and so I can get really like something that someone might say to someone may not affect them as much as it would affect me. And it being triggers in a you. Vulner- it, it really upsets me. And being in a vulnerable position, I need someone who's gentle, nurturing and loving. Mm-hmm. And so I I ran away and I hid down the bathing room with my baby and I was trying to work out why she was crying. I'd fed her, I'd swaddled her, I'd changed her. And I was really trying to work it out. And so she could hear the baby screaming and obviously thought that I was not looking after my baby. And I said, look, I'm just trying to figure out what's happening here. you know." And she's like, you just need to hold her. And I was like, no, I just need to figure out what's happening because I've got to go home with this baby and work, you know, work this out, right? Right. And she's like, why don't I take the baby and I'll look after the baby overnight so you can get some sleep? And I'm like, no, uh, uh, that's not happening. <laughs> and I was like so against this woman. She's like, here's your medication. Take your medication. I've been looking for you. And then she sent another work, a colleague down to come check on me and try to convince me to give the baby over. But what I discovered by sticking to my guns and doing what I felt was it was intuitively right for me was that my baby was pulling her arms out of the swaddle and that was waking her up. Uh And so I I put her in a little swaddle, a little uh, zipper, and from then on she slept through the night and my husband came the next morning right on the dot. I'd had a shower, baby was sleeping. He's like, where's the baby? I'm like, oh, she's sleeping like feeling like yeah. a million dollars. Oh, <laughs> I've got this, I've got this, and we're checking out today. <laughs> yep, get me so out of here. I went home and, you know, we struggled with breastfeeding. Um, I got some really bad advice from one of the nurses that came to my house. Hmm. And so I felt like a double failure. By six months' time, I was mixed feeding to just formula feeding, and um, I felt like a real failure. I'd let her down. I hadn't birthed her the way I didn't feel like I'd birth my baby. I would replace the word birth was when I had my baby or when my baby was born. I wouldn't say when I birthed. Yeah. yeah, I didn't feel part of the experience. Yeah. Yeah. It it happened to me. It, it it wasn't inclusive with me. I just felt completely excluded. Mm -hmm. So I knew when I was going to have my second, I was having a VBAC for sure because I knew there was a thing possible. I knew about VBACs and I said to my GP, when, what's the time frame between babies? And she said 24 months between birth and birth. And that was the thing then or whatever. And I said, fine, I'm having 24 months. And I literally started trying 
you know, within 24 months, whatever it was, 15 months between or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I fell pregnant the second time and I was having a VBAC and I think I joined the VBAC group in Australia and mm-hmm. I started learning all the stuff, becoming informed, advocating. I knew that this time I wasn't having an induction because that's what caused me a C-section. I knew that I wanted to try to avoid GDM because that's what I thought was the lead up the for lead induction. The lead of the induction. Push. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize that my weight was obviously pushing against me so much. I didn't understand the reasons why or some of the discrimination that happened in the hospital at that point. And I I did the early GTT test and I passed that. I was like, yes, maybe they're going to, maybe this is going to be different. You know, I'm going to show them I'm educated. I know what I want. I'm informed. I'm also a people pleaser. So I'm trying to get them on board with me. I'm trying to get them to agree with my decision. Yeah. I'm trying to get them to be part of my team and cheer me on and get excited. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of getting met with um, obstetricians who were like, VBAC is great and it's the best way to birth your baby. I'm like, yes, this is amazing. Thank you. This is what I want to hear. Yeah. yeah. But not for you. And I'm like, oh. what? Not for me. Well, for you, we recommend a, a, a planned cesarean. Okay. They never really spoke in plain language or explained it to me. It was only through digging and digging, digging, asking and asking and asking that I finally was able to get some answers. But I essentially ended up getting gestational diabetes at 20 weeks. So then I wasn't allowed to see midwives because I'd Mm -hmm. asked to see midwives and they said, if you get GD, we won't release you. They disqualify you. They disqualified me from seeing midwives. And I said, look, you're a surgeon can I just see you if I need surgery? Like, can I just, the thing is with GD is that there's a GD counselor and somebody that you report to outside of them. Mm-hmm. So why do I need to see you? Because you're not a GD expert or specialist. I actually yeah. see somebody. Why, why is a midwife not capable of looking after me mm-hmm. when it doesn't make any sense? And oh, yeah, it is really, they're just trying to, pull in all the patients to keep their bellies full and make sure they've got jobs. And I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted. And I only passed, I only failed it by 0.1 on one of the tests. And I wish I'd known back then that I could have redone it and I probably would have passed it, you know. Yeah. It was was really disappointing and I I was like, oh, goodness me. And uh, so I was diet controlled through that time. And I say diet controlled because that's the readings that I gave them. I wasn't really diet controlled, but I was being a bit of a rebel because I was getting the same numbers as I was with my first baby. And Mm -hmm. I was on insulin with her and the insulin didn't do much. And I thought, well, what's the difference going to be if they're the same numbers? She came out healthy, uh, had no sugar problems or anything. And I kind of started to think, is this GD thing a bit overrated if mm. I was in a different hospital or in a well, different that's, country? This is going to ask, I was going to say, if you went somewhere else like last time, would it have been different or would it have actually been GD as well? If I had gone somewhere different and I knew this because I was part of the GD community, right? Yeah. That, and I had friends that were birthing in Brisbane who were even having to keep below higher numbers than me they had much higher numbers than me. And so I thought you're with a private obstetrician and you're getting different information for me. So I was starting to clue on that 
And then also when I was doing my readings on my fingers, I would get like a different reading on this one to this one. And so I started Mm. questioning, like, if this one's like 0.5 difference to this one, how accurate is this measuring? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so so it was really scary for me to do that because, no, I mean, nobody's doing that. And every time you go there, they're like, dead baby. There was Uh. a woman who had gestational diabetes and her baby died. And I was like, you hear these and you're like, what? (laughs) Well, I said, I said, how did she die? How did the baby die? And they said, oh, we can't disclose that information. I said, like, so so you can tell me that he died. (laughs) You're telling a room full of women with gestational diabetes that a baby died and the mum had gestational diabetes. She could have been hit by a car for all we know. And you're using it to fear monger us, but you're not willing to tell us how the baby died. It could have been negligence on the hospital's part. It could not, it may not have been GD related at all. Yeah. She just had um, it. She just had it. And so I found Mm. that quite disgusting. And uh, all of those things started to really add up for me. The more that I saw in the VBAC community, the more that I saw this was happening around Australia, the more I was determined to advocate and fight, which was really hard for a highly sensitive person. But I got a student midwife. I got uh, the the head midwife to be come to my appointments. I had a, a student doula who was a dear friend of mine, and I started to grow a team around me. And I refused to see one of the doctors at one point, and wanted to speak to the best, most amazing doctor in the hospital. And so the midwife set me up with the most nicest obstetrician, who uh, still didn't support me to have a vaginal birth. Uh. Uh, but he was nicer to deal with. And I mean, I had some crazy conversations with some of the obstetricians during mm. that time. One of them was a junior and she said to me, cause I didn't want to have continuous monitoring. I just wanted to have the Doppler. And she said, you know what my boss says? He says, if you don't have continuous monitoring, then you're basically free birthing in the hospital. And I looked <laughs> at her and I was like, you're crazy. Like, at this point, free birth to me was like crazy. And she's uh-huh. telling me that because I'm in a hospital, I'm in a hospital. And if I'm not doing that, you're free, I'm free birthing. I thought, but I'm getting checked with a Doppler. I'm with a midwife. I'm with obstetricians. That is hosp- absolutely yeah. insane. Yeah. But it goes to show the kind of mentality and the thought process that yeah. goes through the fact that they don't know how to be with women. They don't know how to observe and watch a woman. Now my mindset's the complete opposite way. I I see things in a different light to how they would see. They rely on machines, whereas they don't rely on that connection. I'm the type of person that relies on human-to-human connection, and Mm. I listen to people and I love stories, and that's how we learn. We don't learn about humans by watching machines. Mm. I started to learn about the inaccuracies from their machines and some of the equipment that they were using. Mm-hmm. And so it made no sense to me to have continuous monitoring when I knew that one obstetrician would send me to surgery for the reading, whereas another one with maybe more experience uh, who may be older and more chilled would be like, yeah, that's nothing, you know. And it, mm-hmm. and it, if the results are that grey, then that's not beneficial to me because then I'm putting my fate in whether I get a choppy, choppy mid- uh, obstetrician or a chilled, relaxed one on the day. Mm. So that was kind of my thinking. And I didn't do um, growth scans this time. I didn't see the point in me 
having a growth scan to tell me I was having a big baby. My first was 3.7 at 39 weeks. I knew this one was going to be four kilos. And I said, look, I'm happy to birth a 4.5 kilo baby out of my vagina, mm-hmm. which is almost 10 pounds mm-hmm. for your listeners. And um, and they just they just wanted to do cesareans on four kilo babies as well for or sure. inductions. So yeah. It was always about induction. I found out the reason why they wanted to do induction is they wanted to manage me. They weren't a tertiary hospital, uh, one of the bigger ones. And so Mm -hmm. I found out that the junior obstetricians wouldn't be comfortable doing or maybe confident or capable of doing a emergency cesarean on someone of my size. And Mm -hmm. so I said, that's fine. Just send me to that hospital or that hospital. Let's just do this. If it's a staffing issue, I don't want to stress you out, you know, send me to, and they just laughed at me and I thought, oh, can't be a big deal then, can it, you know, if, if they're not willing to send me uh, to a different hospital. Uh, yeah. We had so many conversations and it was anxiety inducing. I would cry on the way to the hospital. I would cry on the way home. I'd have to get my fight on. And I even had a conversation with an obstetrician that said to me, we'll, we'll fight about that later. We'll, we'll, and I said, that's exactly right, though, isn't it? It's a fight. It's a fight. Uh, yeah, like we'll fight about that later. She goes, oh, that I don't right mean there. fight. I don't mean fight. And I'm, yeah, no, yeah, you do. Yeah, but you just said that. Yep, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, I can tell you. You're not agreeing with me, and you're telling me that if I want something else, that I'm going to have to fight with you. And so I'm hearing about this informed consent, and I'm like, but informed consent. You know, I'm, I'm fixated on what will get them to be on my side. I've learned about informed consent. They totally. legally have to support me, right? Yeah. But that is just a farce, in my opinion, in my experience. They wouldn't know what informed consent or working with a woman getting, it just is, blows my mind. I didn't realise it at the time, but there was a lot of conversations that were happening around my weight. You know, you're not going to be able to, it's harder for bigger women like you I would leave conversations thinking, so I'm not going to be able to birth my baby out of my vagina because I'm big. Mm, I was told by an obstetrician. Yeah, basically I was told by an obstetrician that she's not a fattest, but because she, and I was like, I've never heard someone say I'm not a fattest. Like I don't even know what that means. Wow. wow. I had some really interesting conversations because I was asking questions and I was asking questions because I was asking so many questions and you know every time I went to an appointment the obstetrician would say to me oh so you're having a repeat cesarean and that would just a spike of adrenaline like read my book read my book you will know that I'm having a VBAC you know Mm -hmm. and then oh well do you know the risks of VBAC yes I do oh you really do know the risk but we still recommend you have a repeat cesarean and I would have to go through that every single time and so it was a nightmare and by 36 37 weeks I received a phone call and they said I could feel the smugness and the smile through the phone oh we're not willing to take on the risk you have to go to a different hospital oh my gosh and I was just horrified. I was so scared. I was, I've just been kicked out of hospital because nothing has I, changed with me. But because I won't do what they want me to do. Yeah. And I'm because, being stern in my way yeah. and following my heart. 
yeah, because I won't submit and I won't do what you've, I've told you from day one what I'm going to do. But I suppose their, their rate of success with that tactic is probably like 99%. I'm probably the 1% of women who actually says no okay, and actually yeah. will not mm-hmm. fall for your trickery. Yeah. Okay, uh, I was fine, so I'll determined. Leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went to a different hospital and it was a newer hospital. They had birthing pools. I was hopeful I might get in a birthing pool. They you get your own room in the postpartum. Cool. I was excited. They had like informed consent signs. The receptionists weren't fighting each other because this one that I went to, they were pretty rough down there. They were lovely and polite. And I thought, mm. oh, this feels nice. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm going to have a different response. And I did. I, I saw an amazing midwife on entry. She was like, if they don't allow you to do this, you advocate and you can make a complaint. That's disgusting how you were treated. And I thought, oh, wow, this is like the best thing. Saw an obstetrician. They were supportive. They were, you know, they wanted to do some of the same things, but they respected me. Like I felt like I was seeing as a human, they would ask me questions and they would go and ask the consultant and the consultant would agree with me. And I was like, wow, I'm ticking boxes here. Mm-hmm. I made some compromises because I, you know, was vulnerable. I did a growth scan and they found out baby's about four kilos. And but so you I already guessed. <laughs> I knew that with at 39 weeks. I said, that's fine. You know, oh, we recommend induction. I said, oh, yeah, I know you do. I'm not doing it. <laughs> uh, that's what caused me the C section last time. I'm not doing it. And we went through the study about the study at 39 weeks. Mm-hmm. I said, That doesn't apply to me. Doesn't apply Mm. to me. I'm Mm. not in that study. Doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, I don't know how you can have a study saying that it's going to work better on someone at 39 to 41 because you're not doing the same people. You're not like, Mm -hmm. you're not doing induction on someone at 39 weeks and then going, Hey, let's try it again at 41 or whatever it is. You're doing different people. So, Mm. you know, I don't want to know about it. I don't care about it. And they said, okay, well, I'll talk to the consultant. We'll look at the scan. And then she came back and said, yep, you're fine. There's no fat on the shoulders. So, yep, that's fine. If I hadn't have said that, I would have been booked in for an induction, right? Yeah. They would have just said, all right, oh, let's, go. Yep, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Cool. Yep. And, I mean, I'm sat there on the weekend with my husband, shaking like a leaf again, having to advocate for myself. It isn't, a hard, it isn't an easy thing for me to do. Every time I have to raise my voice, I have, I'm like, putting adrenaline into my body. I'm not raising like screaming, but I'm having to use my voice. I'm yes. putting my baby would have been under attack the whole pregnancy essentially. Mm-hmm. And I eventually get to the due date. I end up uh, a week before my due date, actually, I think it was um, a couple of days before my due date. My midwife turns to me at the last appointment. So she was training in the hospital last time. So I was really grateful that she was willing to come with me and support me, even though she wasn't going to get her book signed off for this birth. Mm-hmm. And on that appointment, she said to me, look, my daughter's booked a holiday for me, so I'm going away on your due date. So you've got to have this baby soon now. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh my goodness, like you've just fought with me the whole time and now you've turned into them trying to get me to have my baby before my due date because it's because suits you. You're, yeah, as I say, because you're going on, yeah. Yes, I was heartbroken. <sighs> And I was so angry and I decided then and there I was not going to invite her into my birth space, even if it was sooner because she had betrayed me on every level. Yeah. And 
I went into that appointment and the obstetrician recommended, or she didn't recommend, she said, do you want to do a cervical stretch, stretch, a sweep? And that. I said, oh, no, I don't. And then I yeah. turned to the midwife and said, what do you think? And she's like, yeah, why not? You know, of course she said that because, mm-hmm. you know, it gets the baby out quicker, right? So, again, you got to be careful about who you're with because if you're relying on people who have got a different agenda, you've got to take their advice or their opinion with a grain of salt. But I was a little bit interested myself. I'd never had a stretch and sweep like that before, and I was a bit interested. It was I was worried that I was going to go over due dates and I was willing to wait to 40 plus 10, and I was getting a bit stressed like, oh, what if it goes longer and, you know, then my, mm-hmm. my you know, you start to freak out at that point. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a bit of pressure. And what I'd been through, I just, you know, I had the stretch and sweep and she said, you know, you're three centimetres and you're stretchy. And I was like, wow, wow. wow. Last time they couldn't even, you know, I was get closed a up. In. Yeah. <laughs> so I was so excited and I started to get some niggles and lose some mucus and a bit of blood and things like that. And uh, two days later I went into labour. So she said to me, if it does nothing, uh, in the next couple of days, then it, the baby wasn't ready to come. If it happens, then the baby was always going to come sort of thing, which now obviously what's the point in doing them if the baby's going to come and it does nothing but disturb. I mean, my complete mindset changed now, flip. But, yeah, I went into straight labour. I was so excited, so proud of myself. I'm in yeah. labour this time. I never knew if my body was broken after all of the yeah. mongering and talk and I was just so proud of myself and it was just exciting I had adrenaline pumping through I was shaking with scared and excited and I was going to wait the whole day to go in I was going to essentially go to hospital when my baby's head was coming out uh-huh. so as soon as I went into labor I was like yeah I think I should go to the hospital I was adamant the whole time. I wasn't going in there until I was ready to push. And as soon as I was in labor, I was like, yep, okay, it's time. Let's go. Let's go. It's exciting. You're like, okay, let's go have this baby. And I did, I was, you know, I it was fast and hard. When I go into labor, it's it's not any pre-labor, it's just this is on. And I die like pretty quickly. I when I got to the hospital, I was five centimeters. They were really surprised. At how I was doing because I was quite calm and quiet and they probably they were like oh and I got eventually into the birthing suite my doula came set up the room really pretty and I went into the shower had a midwife assigned to us and she just sat down and read my birth plan and was happy with everything wouldn't let me in the birthing pool of course because mm. I was over 100 kilos even though they've got a hoist that can, you know, for bigger people if they need to, mm. they're just not comfortable with bigger people in the birthing pool. And I just did my thing and I said, I don't want any doctors to come in. Just I don't want anyone annoying me or harassing me. And I just laboured for a few hours and until I felt like there was some waters or something I could smell and feel. Mm. And the midwife said, do you want me to check you? And I said, yeah, um, yeah, we'll see if the waters have gone. And she said, yeah, the waters have gone. And, um, yeah, there's just a little four bag. So would you like me to break that? And I said, oh, if you think so, okay. At this point, my education had gone to the point of getting past the induction. If uh, I get into spontaneous labour and I see a midwife because everyone was raving about midwives, I'm going to be fine. This baby is going to come out my vagina, okay? I didn't know anything about birth, really. I just knew what not to do. 
I'm probably not going to have an epidural, but I'm open to it. You know, you shouldn't break yeah. the waters, but I don't really understand why. Um, but I wasn't having my waters broken. I was just having a little a bit of waters broken. Yeah, yeah. And then came the tsunami and it was my entire waters and it was all over the bed and it was all warm and I was like, what is happening? And so she hit either. So your, four, so your bag never really did break until no. then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yes. And there's some other information, you know, it's, mm-hmm. um, then she's like, oh, we'll put the, the screw on the baby's mm-hmm. head. But the they FSC, call it, fetal scalp electrode. We call it the clip. They call it the clip. The clip. Yeah. Can't call it the screw. <laughs> I call it the screw. It's a little uh, clip and it barely hurts. And <laughs> I, that was one of my compromises from not having the continuous, continuous monitoring. monitoring. Mm-hmm. I said, if I have that, then I can be mobile. That was the compromise and negotiation and then I found myself locked to a machine by the way because uh, it wasn't mobile at this point and then as soon as I got off the bed there was a d-cell and so I was back on the bed I was in excruciating pain at this point I'd come out of my nest in the shower where I was able to breathe through everything and I was standing upright and now there was a bit of fear happening because there was a d-cell that she didn't recover from quick enough so then the obstetricians and everyone had to kind of come in and they were kind of like, oh, you know, C-section, you know, talking about it already. And I said, no, I don't want to talk about it. Like the baby's fine. Just let me do my thing. And okay, okay. And then they hounded me to get a catheter in my arm, even though I didn't want one. I said, no, I don't want one. It's like, it's really painful. Like I don't want it. And she said, oh, you know, come on, we'll just get one in. I said, okay, fine, just do it then. Mm. Just leave me alone. And so she put it in and I'm walking around with like this thing coming out of my vagina, this thing in my hand, and I'm like out of the zone and really finding it hard to get back into how I was feeling. Yeah, Mm -hmm. my space. And I, I must have been in there for an hour or two, maybe a bit longer. By this point, they've told me that I am like 10 centimetres one side, uh, eight centimetres the other, and I've got an, like there was a couple more D-cells and uh, maybe one more and they're saying things to me that I don't understand. They're like, you've got an anterior lip, it's swollen, you're 10 centimetres on this side, eight centimetres that side, your baby's anterolytic, uh, your baby's up high and they're looking at me and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. You don't like, really I'm, know what any of that means. I'm 10 centimetres, like almost like the baby's going to come out right, you know, any minute. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm just like, is the baby's going to come out soon? I, I was starting to feel some pushy pains as well. So my body was pushing a little bit too. Mm-hmm. And then I think I went back into the shower and I kind of called in my husband because he was the weak link and I knew he would do what I said. And I was like, I want an epidural. And the epidural was there within 10 minutes. I knew oh. I knew that would happen. Yeah, they wanted me to have an epidural on arrival because of my size. And I said, I went to the anesthesiologist appointment, anesthesiologist or whatever the name is. And I said, anesthesiologist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. I got it right. And um, I said, they looked at my back and they said, no, you've got a fine back. What they're worried about with bigger people is that they can be fat over the spine. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, well, I've got a fine back, um, which I thought I would be fine because I never had any problems with the C-section. Right. And they said, but we still recommend an epidural on arrival. And I was like, okay, well, at least I understand why. 
but there's no reason. Like the thing is, right, I'm trying to get information from them so I can make informed choices. So if it's in my best interest, then I will say yes and I'll do it. But if it's in the best interest for you to make your life easier, then I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put myself or my baby at risk to make Mm. your life easier, right? And I understood that emergency C-section was higher risk than a planned C-section. I understood induction was higher risk. So I, I knew all of the before things and the choices. What I got stuck with is I didn't understand physiological birth. I hadn't done any of the research for that. So they're talking to me in gobbledygook. All these things are happening. I just never thought that they could. this could happen. I never, ever thought this would happen to me. My mum had me in seven hours. What is happening? What are these things that are happening, right? And now I'm on the on the bed. I'm stuck on the bed because I've chosen to have an epidural. And now I've negotiated because we've had a couple of D cells. I've negotiated for myself what I think is a pretty sweet deal, which I realize is actually a really bad deal mm. of vaginal examinations every hour. Oh. <laughs> so... The normal standard practice is about every four hours. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, how about if we just check every hour and see if there's any progress? Oh. And they're like, yeah, that sounds sure, good. So yeah. Every-, <laughs> every hour they're coming to me and they're saying, no change, baby's up high, no change. We recommend C-section. These are the risks if you wait. And they're talking to me about the risks that will happen in a cesarean not about the risks that will happen in a vaginal birth if I wait. So it's very biased. And I'm like, okay, so what happens if I wait to have a vaginal birth? And they're like, mm-hmm. well, you know, we just recommend a cesarean. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm in a room stuck with the enemy. I'm, I'm saying to my daughter, yeah. I don't trust them. And I feel like they know what they're talking about, but I don't know any different either. Right. And my jeweler was a student doula. And it's not like I'm in there with like a midwife who is on my team and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm looking at the midwife and I'm like, are you going to help me? I'm realizing she's team obstetrician. I mean, I've never Mm -hmm. met her before. She's just working there. Yeah. And I'm thinking this is not what was sold to me in the VBAC group. If I see a midwife, midwives are amazing, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. What What I actually missed was that independent midwives that are not working in hospital who have more free reign. They're the midwives that are, everyone's raving about. Uh, but I'm thinking it's like just random midwives. Any midwife's awesome, uh, right? Okay. And not every midwife's awesome because you've got different personalities, you've got different experiences, you've got different passions, and every person right. is different. Just like you can find an amazing obstetrician, you can find an right. amazing personal trainer. They're not going to suit everybody or everyone's needs. And they have bias against different people based on color, based on gender, based on size, based on the way that you look. If they can identify with you, they're going to be more attached to your story and fight and advocate a bit more. If they're not yeah. really into you, they're going to be like, oh, well, I'm not going to lose my job over this sort of thing. So I've yeah. learned all these things since. And uh, eventually after about six hours, I had another D. So I think I had about three in total. It wasn't a huge amount. Yeah, but and how low were they? In. Do you remember? I don't. I don't remember. Uh, the The problem was is that they weren't. She wasn't coming back as quickly as they would have liked. Prolonged. And that's yeah, it was prolonged. And so, I also didn't know at the time that the epidural also slowed down my contractions too. I only know this from getting my hospital notes, which is quite common with epidurals as well. And eventually, I just said, "Okay, fine. I'm re- I'm fine. I'll go." You know, after the last mm. one, it felt 
my baby's at, at risk or something. I mean, if someone's coming to you every hour saying, this is the risk, we recommend that, eventually you kind of just give up. So I think I'd been in labour for a total of 12 hours at that point, the first labour I'd ever had. And off I went. And as I was going out, the midwife said to me, it's okay. I had a home birth planned, but I ended up in a cesarean. It's all right. You'll be okay. And mm. I was like, so you never were my team because you haven't even had a vaginal birth yourself. And I looked at her and I was like, that was the worst thing you could have ever said to me at that point. I was like, just because you had one and you're okay with it, right? doesn't mean that I'm okay with it. And it was like the worst thing. She obviously thought it was really supportive, but I was just like, I felt so betrayed. I was just like, so off I went and I had my surgery and then everything started to kind of go downhill. And my husband got rushed out of the surgery with my baby and you could just feel it was like intense. And I, I was like thinking, I said to my husband, like, I love you. Look after the baby. I think I'm either going to lose my uterus at this point or I'm going to die. And I was like, were you hemorrhaging or? So basically the story that they tell me, I'm not sure if I believe it, but even if it is true, you know, even if it, it is what it is at the end of the day, they said the, one of the risks that they were worried about with a baby is when a baby descends too much, there's a, um, you know, this yourself, there's always a risk of a special scar happening because there's more risk of a, uh, tear or them having to cut more. And so that's what they were informing me about the whole time. They knew about the risk and but they the were trying baby to baby was me. high, right? They told me baby is high. They said that when the baby came out, she flung her arm up and ripped down to my cervix. Uh, okay. Now, how does that happen when a baby's up high? Yeah. If she's, if she's up high, how is she rip, ripping down to my cervix? Um, yeah. Interesting. How does that, now I think about that, how does that kind of happen? Is it because my cervix was, well, because my cervix was fully dilated. Yeah, except for on that one side. Was was it, did it ever finish that swelling, that edema, did it go down? Not that I know of. Uh, So what they told me was nothing had changed positioning in that. And then when I looked at the notes, when I got the notes a year later, I saw that the positioning had changed. She had come down a station but they had never communicated that to me. Mm. I have a feeling that she was probably down a bit further than they had put because on the paperwork, they also said I was only seven centimeters. Mm. There was no mention of an ensign uh, of an interior lip. And so they fudged the papers a little bit and weren't honest. And mm. I mean, if you're going to just make a few little changes, then obviously, you know, there's a reason for that. You know, it obviously mm. looks better on paper. Well, maybe that's having that's what happens all the time they'll really like yeah the patient will hear one thing it's and then deceptive. on the op reports it's a little different so that's what we, yeah. we always encourage get your op reports it's sometimes hard to read but get your op reports it is hard to read and you know they put it on the board too here in australia what you are and at what time so the information's there for me to look at the whole time while i'm um mm-hmm. in labor so it's not just like one person said it it's literally there on the board for you to see and i was quite upset when I saw some of the notes and I went through the notes. I've been through them multiple times now and I was just trying to learn and I was Googling, what does this mean? And what does that mean? Cause I don't know the medical jargon right. and I'm learning all the things I'm looking at spinning babies and I'm looking at everything and, and trying to learn after the fact. But essentially what had happened was she, apparently she had flung her arm out, tore my, tore my uterus down to the cervix 
and then they need to call in a specialised team to come and resolve that problem that they had created. The surgery went for a number of hours and mm. and it was a very challenging surgery. I wanted to crawl out of my body essentially um, because I'd been laying there for so long it just felt, and it was just a horrible experience. Uh, I was reunited with my baby. She was born at 6.30. I was reunited with them about 12 o'clock at night. So I had been in labor from four o'clock in the morning and then I was breastfeeding her because my husband advocated for her to be breastfed. So that meant that she had her sugars checked and they were fine. And so they were happy for her to wait for me. And so I was really, really glad that my husband advocated for me. Mm -hmm. I was so tired when I got out of surgery and I was like, stuck in this hot room and I was sweating profusely. There was no air con and some of the rooms, even though it was new, didn't have air con and it was just, I ended up in a room with no air con and it was so hot. And um, I had to have like a midwife stay with me and do observations every 15 minutes to check me. I didn't end up in the ICU, but I lost 3.1 litres of blood mm-hmm. and I had blood transfusions in the yeah. surgery, all of the stuff in the surgery keep me awake and all of that I really wanted to go under but they wouldn't put me under because I'd been eating and yeah um, it wasn't a great experience and I came out very traumatized from that experience I ended up having PTSD with flashbacks Mm. I was crying for months Uh, I felt broken they told me to never have a vaginal birth again that I could have two more babies so that was amazing I was like well you must have done a good job if you think I can have two more Mm-hmm. but they must be born cesarean. And so I was like, okay, no problems. I was so grateful oh, to be alive Yeah, yeah. after that experience. And I was trying to make sense of what had happened. And so the next few years, that was my mission. Mm-hmm. To, to make to, sense. To try to make sense and try to just, because I've gone from a space of you're not allowed to have a vaginal birth to, what happened, what mm. happened, trying to understand what happened and then planning a future because we wanted four children in total. Yeah, yeah. And so I was never having any more children for six to 12 months. I was done. I was never going to go through that again. I was a broken person. I was really struggling. But I trained as a postpartum doula and I started to want to help women in breastfeeding and and the things that I knew that I could support because I ended up breastfeeding that baby to 12 months and I felt like a a success in that regard. I'd learned a lot about breastfeeding and I wanted to share my voice and help women, but I wasn't well enough to help women in the birth space because I felt like a failure. I was trying Mm. to learn and I wanted to be in a space that I felt safe in because this Mm. is like trauma and challenges happening and this is, me being able to help people and make a positive out of a negative essentially. Right. And then I found you guys, I found your podcast and I was like, this is amazing because you were the first place that was promoting feedback after two cesareans. Mm-hmm. And back then nobody was having feedback <laughs> after two cesareans, <laughs> let alone multiple now that we yeah. see happening. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with your podcast because when you hear women's stories and you hear the statistics and you can actually hear other women doing it, that was the start of me getting hope and realising that there was another way. 
Oh, that just gave me the chills. Like, so thank you so much for your podcast. I a, because I have a sweater on right now, but like literally, <laughs> I just got like it just went up my arm. Oh, awesome! Oh. It is really nice to know that. Like, if I didn't come across your podcast, I probably wouldn't have taken that next step. So yeah. it is life changing to hear other women's stories and and have that resource and. The fact that you guys had the stats and everything, that really I was very much in the stats trying to move through and yeah. special scars and I eventually got onto special scars, special hope. Oh, such a good group. Yeah, so amazing and started to connect with other women who were having worse scars than me, like, you know, they were birthing on scars, you know, classical scars. I was like, holy mm-hmm. moly. Bolty. Like, mm-hmm. I think it was ACOG that's, uh, or maybe Ranzed, New Zealand and Australian, they said it was okay to labor on a scar like mine because I had a vertical scar down to my cervix. That's the lower risk mm-hmm. special scar. I was like, if it's good enough for them, it's good <laughs> enough for me, you know? Yeah. What are these people saying? But all the obstetricians, they, you know, that I'd spoken to because I had a meeting with an obstetrician. I had met with so many midwives and who knew about the system. And they said to me, look, they're going to be petrified with you coming to the system. Yeah. And I, it was really good to get that feedback. And from my own experience, they wouldn't allow me to have a V-back, let alone V-back. A V-back with a, speci- <laughs> V-back with a special scar. With a special yeah. scar. Yeah. And high BMI. And I, I started to really try to uncover. So I met with an obstetrician from that hospital and she basically said to me, look, you're a square peg trying to fit in a round hole or what a round peg and square hole. And I looked at her, I didn't understand that. I've never heard that. And I I've never been referred to as that kind of person. I'm quite like in doing what normal people do. (laughs) (laughs) I was like looking at her, like, what are you talking about? And she just said to me, basically, I ended up with the the surgery because the surgeon that was working had decided that because of my weight, that that was all I was capable of, or that was the path that I was going through. Mm. And I just, you know, that was really the first time that I've felt like my weight has actually held me back or I've been discriminated against. When I look back at the fact of how I've treated the conversations I was having, obviously it was happening the whole way through. I just was so naive to it that it was happening in my face (laughs) and I didn't even realize it because the thing is, I understand that being of high weight can put you at risk for all these things. So I'm looking at it from their point of view, but I'm not actually sometimes looking at it from Ashley's point of view. Mm-hmm. And I understand their concern and I understood all the medical stuff because I listened to them. I asked questions. I'd read their policies for obese people. And I understood and that, that it was discrimination. I didn't understand it at the time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand. They probably weren't seeing me as a human as maybe they would if I was a skinny version of myself we probably would have had a completely different conversation. They probably would have been cheering me on and holding my hand and saying, you're an amazing VBAC candidate. We support you. We probably still want to do all these things to you, but we're not going to kick you out of hospital. So, you know, and that's the difference when I hear women's stories, oh, she's allowed to get in the water bath and she's allowed to have a beautiful birth and she doesn't have to do a bend over backwards and do a cartwheel. And then it's because she looks a certain way or she was really mm-hmm. lucky because she got an obstetrician that was amazing. Whatever the, yeah. you know, there's all these things that kind of have to line up and mm-hmm. that's what propelled me on my journey to find home birth as an option. Home birth, home birth. Yeah. So 
you, you talked about like stats. You're on this mission of stats. So you went out and you found the stats about be back after multiple cesarean, two cesarean, special scars, found some stuff, said, okay, it seems acceptable. And then you started home birth. So based off of your own research for you, you felt completely comfortable starting no, this journey. Okay. I didn't, I didn't. I mean, I had to work through the fears with the stats. Okay. And I, and so- I, was, I was comfortable with home birth and the idea of home birth. I understood yeah. that home birth was as safe as birthing in a hospital. And I understood that if I was birthing with a midwife, that I would have a medical person with me. Uh-huh. Now, the next challenge that came for me was that I couldn't find a home birth midwife who would support me. Yeah. So every, I feel like I leveled up. I was leveling up the whole time. It was like, oh, you now you got two V-backs. Oh, no, now you got a special scar. Let's work through this. What do I feel comfortable with? Yeah. What am I willing to take on? Okay, okay, that's doable. That's doable. That's manageable. Okay, I can work through that. Okay, what's the next thing? Okay, the next thing is this. Okay, what am I going to do with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a home birth. Okay, home birth feels like a safe option. I can do this. I can do that. I can do that. Okay, that's going to be the best thing for me. I'm not going to go mm-hmm. back to hospital. Is the thing. And then I love how I you said options. that. Like, I can do this. That I'm comfortable yeah. with this. This. Like, you kind of have to go through with anything. Like. In life, in life in general, but especially with this birth, like you went through it and you're like, okay, yep, 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 yep. Okay. Now here I am. Yeah. And I was seeing a psychologist at the time for, uh, of all Trauma. things to help me w- lose weight actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So my GP, I wanted to lose weight. I've been overweight my whole life. I wanted to lose. I went to a nutritionist and she's like, you know, everything. I think it's emotional. You need to go, you know, I've got childhood mm. stuff going on. I worked with him and I said to him like, the way that I feel about the hospital system and, you know, is this right? Like I just, I just, and he's like normalizing my experience for me and saying you're perfectly normal. And I'm trying to say, am I having a trauma response here? You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to go into a hospital at home birth because I'm having a trauma response, you know, because the obstetrician said to me, one of them, she's like, she wasn't really the best obstetrician uh, for the debrief. She said to me, well, you've got a risk of special scar 7% rupture rate. And I said, well, that's a little bit different to what I found in special scar special hope where they're looking at women. She's like, oh, I said, have you got any statistics? She's like, no. And I'm like, okay, so how can I trust that what you're saying is correct then? Well, then where'd you get 7%? Exactly. And she's like, look, if you like, if you find any doctor who's willing to support you, then they're not the doctor for you. I'm telling you what is the safest thing for you. And I was like, so you're the best. I was like challenging her because at this point I'm just like, like done. so angry. Yeah, I'm so done. I'm so done. I've just been through hell because of you people. And I want to get information. I don't want to hear your judgments. And she's, she said to me, if you find a doctor, then you, like they're not, basically they're not right. They're doing the wrong thing. And I said, so you're the best doctor in the, the the whole world. Like, you know everything, right? Like, you're the best and you, you're the best then. <laughs> so if I find another doctor who says yes, then they're wrong and you're right. And you're right. You're yeah. And she's looking at me. She's like, I just feel like what you're going to do is you're going to keep looking until you find someone and then you're going to put yourself at risk. And I'm like... That is exactly what I'm going to do. I should have sent her a postcard after my free birth and said, I free birthed. <laughs> uh, thank you for driving me to this. Um, it, it is amazing the conversations you have when you really do have conversations because you can see where they're coming from and how very different their views are and some of the fears and worries that they have 
mm-hmm. are not about you and your baby. They're about themselves and their career. The the information I didn't know about her is that she was actually the head of obstetrics and mm-hmm. she just lost her title and her job. She'd oh. been bumped down because she was a very, the reason why I went to her is because she supported breech birth in mm. hospital and she was very vaginal friendly and she did support me. Um, she was the consultant I saw on the paperwork that mm. supported me to have a vaginal birth. Mm-hmm. But in the in the time frame of me organising to meet up with her, what the information I didn't know that I found out later was that she'd lost her job because she had supported somebody to have a breach and there was a poor outcome that the parents accepted but somebody else had um, basically uh, complained. Mm-hmm. And so she, the, the only thing is, Breach is so risky, they say, even though it's not. She's one of the radical obstetricians, so she'd been punished. Mm. And so she was coming from a space of where she was. And so it's in, it's really important to know that information. You never know where they are in their, their career or how they're feeling. So the information, she might have been really bitter at the time and negative and feeling like there was yep. doom and gloom in the world. So. It was really shameful when I was speaking to my doula friends and they're like, oh, really? She was so amazing. I'm like, yeah, well, maybe she's amazing, but not for people like me. She, mm-hmm. Maybe she supports this person because they've got a thin, thin body. And because of me, she's like, no, I wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot pole because it's too risky for her and for her job, for example. So yeah, they are up against it as well in the system. And that's something that I, I have learned. And so my next mission was I need to find a midwife who is going to bat for me, not somebody who's going to be worried about losing their career because they come after the midwives too that are home birthing. So I had got on to the free birth podcast as well and I was listening to their stories and I was like, oh, it's a bit out, out there for me. I mean, I'm not brave mm-hmm. enough to do that. That's, mm, you know, a bit radical and Eventually, my husband was the one that talked me into free birthing when we couldn't mm. find a midwife to support me. And it took me a long time to kind of feel okay with that choice because mm-hmm. that is a very different choice than what a lot of people were making at the time. I mean, home birth is now I feel like it's very popular because everyone was like flocking to it in COVID times. Yeah. And because of that, so many women are free birthing, at least where I live, it's and because I work in the space now, I, I see so many, but there was only a handful of free birth doulas at the time. Now, like everybody's doing it and it's like, it's no skin off anyone's nose. It's like, oh, just another free birth, just another free birth. <laughs> <laughs> it's so normalized. And um, it was very scary because I was the only one that was doing this, but also mm-hmm. the only one doing this that was like special scar, high BMI. I was looking for somebody like me mm-hmm. who had made this, same choice. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really any. So I was kind of connecting with the VBACs and hearing their stories as, as I went along. And that gave me faith and trust. And I had to learn about physiological birth and I had to take on a lot of responsibility. If there was a poor outcome, it was on me. If there was a poor outcome in the hospital, it was on me anyways. I had to live with the consequence of that choice. And so that was a hard thing to work through that no matter what, it was on me. It was just who did I want to place blame on to the rest of society? Mm-hmm. If I birthed in a hospital and I lost my baby, society would be like loving me and supporting me. If I lost my baby in a home birth or a free birth, I'd be demonized yeah. and burned at the stake. And so 
as somebody who likes to fit in and not be, I'm not a maverick type of personality, I wouldn't think. It was quite challenging for me, but I eventually worked through and I asked those questions of myself and I did this and I did that and I did healing and I, I did all these things. And then I started my own podcast when I was six months, five months pregnant as well. So it's one thing to choose free birth, but then when you are pregnant, it's like, oh, there's a baby now mm-hmm. <laughs> and all these new fears come up and I got a doula straight away because I knew that I wanted emotional support. I wasn't really sure I needed the physical support on the day. I felt really comfortable and capable of doing the birthing. I felt mm-hmm. I'd gotten up to 10 centimetres what's pushing out the baby. I thought that maybe having her there for the placenta would be really helpful because I don't know, I was worried about postpartum hemorrhaging and also the placenta. Mm -hmm. And I really knew that as a highly sensitive person, I needed that extra emotional support. And I knew that that's what doulas did. It's what I did for my postpartum clients. And at this time I'd been working with clients for a few years and supporting clients for a couple of years through my program and really realized how important this work was. So I was looking for somebody like me basically to support me through that experience. And I went for somebody, and this is why it's important to choose the right people. I went for a free birth doula, but I went for a really tough person who was confident and strong. I didn't Mm -hmm. go for a nurturing person because that to me was like strength and you're confident and you're confident in this situation. Mm -hmm. And even though I said, this is the support I want and need, can you do this? she didn't have the personality to be able to deliver the kind of emotional support that I wanted. And she had a very busy practice going on. um, So she wasn't able to kind of support me the way I needed. And also she didn't know what a highly, the highly sensitive, like I find that some people are okay with minimal support that maybe you check in once a month or maybe you Mm -hmm. check in every couple of months or just really check in at the end of the pregnancy. Some of the doulas do. And for me, I needed that every week, hey, how are you going? Are you alive? What's going on for you? What kind of fears are you having? I felt as somebody who was free birthing for the first time, who had PTSD and trauma, someone who was having special, there was so much stuff that I needed support with that I feel I was really left to myself to kind of duel on myself, which is why now I work with women in this space doing the emotional support. But I, I was, it was so easy that I didn't have to go to the hospital but I felt really alone through that period Mm. because I didn't have the checks anymore. I didn't have anyone checking in with me in that capacity. I didn't have, it was COVID time. So I had, I called a GP and got some scans and things that I wanted to get done, which was really cool. But I was feeling really alone and, you know, and that sort of thing. So I was lucky to call in some of my village of doulas and my postpartum doula, she really stepped in from about 30 weeks for me and would come and visit me. She's a very dear friend of mine now. We were friends before. We were business friends. So yeah. I had a lot of friends through my work and they became really good friends. I really relied on them and they were more than happy and honoured to be part of my journey. And I'd learned the skill of the support because I was teaching my clients, you've got to have a circle of support. You've got to have people to support you. Let's talk about this video. I was doing all the right. things that I was teaching my clients. I thought I better do these things. Otherwise, I'm a bit of a hypocrite, right? right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can't ask my clients to do hard things if I'm not willing to do them, do right? It. Yeah. Yeah. I mean- have hard conversations, put myself, make myself vulnerable. 
It's always but it's hard to do. It's easier to preach. It's easier to preach. Oh yeah. It is easier. But then when it's you, you're like, oh, what if they say no? You know, what if Mm -hmm. they don't want to help me? What if I'm a nuisance? And I just had to have faith. I'd learned about boundaries in this time and healthy, healthy mindset. So it was a completely different experience. And my friends, they didn't understand free birth, but they supported me. They were hospital doulas. So I couldn't sit down and say to them, oh, you know, I'm really worried. Like, what what if my baby does die, you know? They would be like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. you should just go to hospital. You know, I, I couldn't really have truthful, honest yeah. conversations because that would be quite scary. Yeah. Man, you know, I just think what you just said is just like so powerful. Like, I couldn't have truthful conversations because that would be scary. Yeah, it would be because they would like, be scared. David, yeah. yeah. Like. I, that is just so powerful to me because in this world, we need to have that. Yeah. We need to have those truthful conversations because they're going to be hard and they're going to be scary, but we couldn't, we, you didn't, you couldn't. No. Yeah. And that's why, because it was such a, a, sm- a small percentage of people doing it. Yeah. It was hard. It's not, and, and in the free birth communities, it was a they were very people that were. Say, was it quiet to like no. tight or did people talk about her? Like, well, in the free birth community, they, there was full of people who were free birthing because they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And that was their choice. They had access and were able to get midwives, but it was, there's the difference. There's people in the community who live and breathe it because they're, it's a Christian upbringing or their mother did it or they intuitively, they're intuitive and they're connected with their, they're naturalists, like they're very crunchy. Whereas I'm like more mainstream and mm-hmm. I find myself, I couldn't get a midwife. So I'm like, yeah. boohoo you me. Get the support. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't get what I want in a hospital. Boohoo me. I can't get the support. I can't even get prenatal care that I really want because no midwives will support me um, because they're worried about their insurance. And so while I'm in the free birth community, I didn't feel like I fit in. I'm like half in the mainstream mm. space, half in the free birth because I'm not making this choice from, oh, I love the idea of free birth. It's I want to have a, I want to have a home birth, but I can't get a midwife. So what's the next best thing? Yeah. And you I've feel stuck too, maybe a little bit where you're like, if I want this yeah. birth, this is what I have to do. And at that point, exactly. So I, it was the safest and best choice for me and my baby at the time, but I wasn't making it from like, I'm so excited that this is my option. Now I've had the experience. I have the lived experience and confidence, but um, it's, uh, and I find that a lot of people, especially VBAC women or people who have had trauma in the hospital system, if they choose to have a free birth, it's usually from a space of like, there's so much baggage and so much, so many emotional things that are coming with that. And a lot of the time they're doing it because they want to protect their birth space from being interfered by a medical person and they can't trust even a midwife because even midwives can interfere in in birth, in physiological mm-hmm. birth. So they learn about free birth. And this is where I was at. I want a midwife, but I don't want a midwife. And so I don't want somebody who's going to judge me because of my size or because I'm a VBAC, they're going to be like, oh, you better go to hospital now. You've been in labor for 12 hours. That would crush my soul to have to go in a hospital. So I was worried about that because I'd been listening to free birth stuff. But I also was interviewing Dr. Rachel Reed, who lives here in Australia, who talks about, and and Dr. Sarah Rachel, uh, Dr. Sarah Buckley, don't know if you know these ladies, 
Um, Sarah Buckley. Yeah, Sarah Buckley. She's got an amazing book. It's on my desk here. I think it's called Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. And Dr. Rachel Reed, she, like Sarah's on undisturbed birth and she's had a free birth herself. And Rachel, she talks about physiological birth and instinctive birth. And so if you grasp the concept of how we birth outside of the system without medicine and that our body instinctively does what it needs to do without any involvement for midwives. So she shares her story of being an attending midwife and not interfering in births and allowing them to unfold, which meant she had to really look at how she practiced and how much she was really disturbing births by oh, it looks like the woman needs to get into this position by telling the woman to getting this position, I'm going to just allow and see what happens. And she would share stories of like, this woman's getting in this crazy position, but she's a second time mom, she's had a vaginal birth, I'm just going to see what happens. And finding out the reason why the woman's pointing her bum up to the sky is because the baby's got its arm bent up. And if she was standing up, the gravity would have ripped her a new one, whereas this is a slow birth. But nobody knows what's going on except for her beautiful body and the nerves and everything that's happening. And I thought she's a home birth midwife who's attended hundreds or whatever of births in her career. Mm -hmm. She's a got a PhD on this stuff. She knows what she's talking about, right? And then there's this other doctor, Sarah, who's talking about the hormones And she's talking about undisturbed birth and how important it is. And so you can't really have an undisturbed birth in a hospital setting. You could, but you would just be like putting everyone's nerves and wits on end. You would be free birthing. You would be (laughs) be free free birthing birthing in the hospital. (laughs) You'd be free birthing in the hospital and everyone would be shaking out the door like, (laughs) and then you can have one at home. But like, what if I get someone who like judges me because my size or they're worried about feedback because I also interviewed Melanie Jackson, who did a uh, study on free birth and why women of high risk free birth. And I asked her, how would you feel attending a VBAC? And so she said to me, we treat, generally they do look for things with VBAC women, prolonged, you know, they're looking for the uterine rupture things, prolonged late, you know, surges between infrequent surges and bleeding and things like that. If you go over a certain time, they're much more likely to transfer you to hospital. And so I'm like, okay, well, that's good to know. Do I really want somebody who's going to be possibly trigger happy at my birth and end up in hospital again? And goodness knows Mm. what happens. So I'm stuck between, I'm happy to go with these midwives because I know that they do physiological birth and I'm, I don't know about them. They're a risk for me. Mm. And that's where I kind of was. And then when I got rejected by the the midwives that I knew that were physiological and stood back and watched, I was like, uh, that's it for me. I'm, I guess I'm free birthing and I've just got to muster the strength. Here we go. And, you know, it was a very hard pregnancy with the HD again, and but it was a very different pregnancy. It was COVID times. I was lucky enough to get some of the appointments and scans and things without seeing a GP. I just kept saying I was seeing a midwife and I need you to do the scans or whatever and just write the script for the scans. And I went into labor. Well, actually what had happened was I got to 38 weeks and my waters broke Mm. and it was the first time. So every, every experience is different. And I was in my bed and I was like, I moved. And I was like, did I just do that? Like, did I just make this happen? Yeah. And I got up and I said to my husband, you know, Royce, Royce. And he's like running down the hallways, like, 
all this water coming out. He's got a towel and he's going behind me and I'm like excited. <laughs> it was at four o'clock again. So my last one was at four o'clock and this one was at four o'clock. Called my doula. She said, okay, we'll just go back to bed. Yeah. And I'm already putting myself on a clock because I've already, I've got my things that I'm willing to wait for too. So uh-huh. I'm like 48 hours, 48 hours, got to have this baby in 48 hours. Otherwise I'm transferring in. Yeah. So I'm stressing myself out. I'm like, okay, I'll get into bed, see what happens. But within half an hour, I was, I was already contracting. So mm-hmm. I said, call her and tell her to come back down because I really wanted that womanly support and I wanted somebody with me. I always felt like both of my labors were going to be really quick because of my mom and yeah, um, yeah. You just, hear it, just, you hear. Oh, how'd your mom birth? Oh, you'll probably birth like that, you know. Yeah, and I went into you know straight away the labor and it was painful. I'm talking like very, very painful. I couldn't sit. So like my second one, it was fine. I could handle it. I was moving for hours before I mm-hmm. asked for the epidural. This time I went straight into it. And I really think for me, it's the fact that the waters went. Yeah, it does make a difference. It really did make a difference because I was in excruciating pain with my second one when the waters went and the same with this one. And I thought, oh, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to sit on the toilet. No, that doesn't work. I'm going to sit on the birthing pool, uh, the birthing um, ball. No, that doesn't work. I'm going to lay in the bed. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. But I'm still stressing. Music goes on. Hubby's got the music on. Got my birthing comb deep breathing. I'm, I'm moaning. I've got me on video. I'm like, I'm just looking at my video now. Like you were in so much pain. I feel for you. <laughs> <laughs> my kids are getting up. They're so excited. They've been trained little duelers. They're like, mm-hmm. you're so good mom. And I can feel their high energy. And I'm looking at them like, I just hate everyone right now. Yeah. I hate you all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> on the video, they're all like, what's mommy doing? She's in labor. It's so excited. The little faces, they're so, my husband's so excited and I'm like in oh. hell. And <laughs> I was just like, and then eventually I got into the birthing pool and I was still in hell and I was breathing through and I was looking at my affirmations. My husband had scrambled to get up. the birthing pool, put everything out because we weren't expecting me to go on labor till 40 weeks. Yeah. And my do- I said to my doula, is this normal? Is this normal? You know? This is normal. She's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. You know, I'm like, can you hold my hand? Cause I really need to hold your hand right now. And I'm doing the birthing, I'm doing the comb and I'm breathing and I'm just giving me some water and she's doing a little homeopathic thing. And I'm like, nobody really knew the pain that I was in because it was all inside and internalized. Yeah. Uh, I look at videos and it's very peaceful and calm and I don't look like I'm in much pain. I'm, dealing with it really well. I'm very quiet. And then eventually, maybe after about four hours of that really challenging, a flip just switched and there was nothing. It was just bliss, mm-hmm. peaceful, calm, no real pain. I mean, I was having surges and and then I started pushing. I started to have pushing. Oh Every gosh. third or fourth contraction, I was pushing. I was pushing out poo. So I was like, okay, this is great. Well, my husband's having good, to clean it up. It's a good start. It felt so satisfying and it was my body was taking over. I had no control. It was so satisfying. Getting, and I would always get on my knees and lean over the pool and bearing down and then I would have a few contractions and I'd just be laying back in the water, relaxed, and in between mm-hmm. them I was laughing about my leg went numb and I was like, oh, God, man. My leg really hurts. I wish I could chop it off. It's so painful. And 
<laughs> I was leaning on the other side trying and I thought it's because I'm laying on it, but oh. it wasn't. It was the baby. <laughs> I didn't know oh. it at the time. Yeah, the baby made my leg go numb and I didn't realise. So I had another posterior baby. Mm. I had a bit of pain in my back, not too much. And so my theory is, and I believe this to be true, considering that I was in, I was 10 centimetres in seven hours. I think the real pain for me was dilation. So I think I got fully dilated. Mm-hmm. And then knowing what I know about the pushing stage and I know the different stages and variations of normal now through mm-hmm. um, Dr. Rachel Reed and that, I realized that what I'd been taught about early labor, active labor, transition and pushing stage isn't true for every woman. Every woman's different. And so I had posterior babies. So I had early pushing every third or fourth contraction because I had fully dilated but my baby now had to come down and I knew that because of my, my last one, right? Mm-hmm. So my baby, the whole rest of the labor was my body pushing and rotating. And my husband said to me, look, you can see the baby's moving because you can actually see my belly moving. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah. And so it was literally just allowing that process to unfold the way that it needed to listening to my body and getting into the positions that felt right for me. I had instructed my doulas to not tell me, coach me or put me into any positions because I believed in undisturbed instinctive birth and I wanted to allow it to unfold the way that it needed to unfold. And I felt that was the safest way for me to birth my baby out of a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. If I was birthing in a hospital setting, I would want to get that baby out as quickly as possible because there's a whole set of rules that happen in the hospital, but when you're at home, you can do whatever you like. And that's what I really love about the birth that I had. And, you know, eventually we're just going through that process of my husband's in the pool, he's out of the pool, he's supporting me. People are laughing. The doulas went outside to give my husband and I a bit of privacy. There was a bit of a fuss about, have you done a wee? I can't do a wee. I'm trying to do a wee. I'll try to get a wee. So, I'd watched a bit of orgasmic birth. Um, So I said, oh, why don't we just get a little bit frisky for a bit and (laughs) see if I can wee. So my husband was touching me and I was touching him and I still couldn't wee. So I was really fixated on that and I really Mm. wish I hadn't. You know, know, every now and then it was like, oh, I'm like, oh, maybe it's the water, the wee is stopping the baby from coming out. You get in your head a little bit, which is why I don't like people asking things, but I understand why people do ask things because they're checking you're okay. And eventually I said to my husband, oh, can you put your hands in there and see if you can feel anything? I, before I'd felt this huge push, like this humongous poo, like oh, the size of a head mm. was coming out. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to do the biggest poo. But of course it was the baby's head coming right mm. down. I didn't mm. know at the time. And it was the baby's head coming down. And I said, can you put your fingers in? And he said, oh, it feels like a kiwi fruit. Do you know what a kiwi fruit is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, like a little soft, mm-hmm. like hairy, you know, and I'm like, yep. oh. He's like, well, maybe it's a muscle though. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I've prolapsed. Like maybe, and yeah. this is what we're thinking, right? And I'm like, oh, well, what will be will be. Of course a kiwi fruit is a baby's head. <laughs> Squished, yeah. squished, fuzzy baby head. <laughs> but we're so clueless. Like I love that like, he said it feels yeah. like a kiwi. <laughs> and he has no idea, like absolutely no idea. But it's so funny, like looking back at it now. And he, 
eventually I knew like I started pushing and the doulas came running in and everyone was excited and, you know, eventually I was, she was coming in and out and in and out. And then eventually mm-hmm. she came out and the doula said, you know, to my husband, don't touch the baby, move away from the baby, don't touch. And I was kind of like, why is she saying that? Like I've watched so many videos of babies being born and the mum's encouraged to touch the baby's head and mm-hmm. what's happening. I'm thinking in breech birth, you're not supposed to touch the baby. And I'm, I'm, I'm in my head again now and I'm mm, feeling a little bit scared. Because people are talking. Yeah. People are talking. I'm feeling scared. And then um, I had no more contractions mm-hmm. and I've completely shocked myself out of contractions. And then I'm like, there's no, there's no contractions. And, and then like her shoulders are out and her head's out and I'm like, okay, what do I do? Because once that happens, the baby always comes out. Comes out, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, can you pull the baby out to my husband? He's like trying, but he doesn't want to like hurt the baby. Uh-huh. He's really soft. And then I'm like to my daughters, can you pull them? And they're like, no, we don't like do that. And I'm like, okay, um, so I'm just going to purple push here because I don't know what to do. And I'm like pushing, pushing, pushing. And eventually I'm like going black in my, like in my Pushing so hard in your head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But eventually she pops out and it must've been only a minute or two, but in that time they're like yelling at me, push, push, you know, I'm getting all the things I didn't want. Right. Coach Mm -hmm. pushing, you know, like I can feel the energies because I'm empathic. And one of the things I pick up the most is people's feelings and energies. And I know that everyone's freaking out and Mm -hmm. I'm like, no one knows any answers. And I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah. And she was born, she was happy and she came on to me and I said, oh, is it a, I felt, and I'm like, oh, it's a girl. I thought it was a girl. And, and then my doula comes racing around. She's like, oh, I think that there's a bit of labored breathing. And I'm like, she's like, I think you should call the ambulance. And I was like, okay, we'll just call the ambulance then. And the ambulance was called and they were there within a few minutes. And then my doula said, we think you should, and I've, at this point, you have to understand from the birthing point of view, I've handed all my power over to somebody else to make those choices for me Yeah, because there was a few suggestions on birthing on positions throughout. And I kind of just rolled my eyes and I was like, I got this, you know, no Uh one's telling me what to do, but because I'd handed over that power. And I think there is a place to have some collaboration, but I think that for me, I would have preferred if I'd taken the full responsibility on, Mm. but for whatever reason, I, you know, I had it in my head that that's how it was going to go for that. And it is the way it is. And I accept that path. Yeah. But I've certainly learned a lot of, you know, Ashley needs to take full responsibility next time, but I don't Mm. think that that's for everyone. And I don't think that, you know, women need to birth like that either. If we look Mm -hmm. at thousands of years before us, you know, we've been birthing with wise women and that's the whole reason I had the experienced person in my room yeah. um, with me so I could rely on her experience and wisdom. Right. It's just a shame that some of those things unfolded the way they did. But she said, suggested that we cut the cord and my husband pick her up. And as soon as that happened, she just let out the biggest cry and, mm. you know, rah, rah, rah. And, <laughs> you know, I, I knew she was totally fine. And yeah, I was just really happy that she was fine. I didn't get to have the things that I really wanted to have, like the golden hour and the crawl to the breast and things like that, that is really sold in the home birth community of, you know, why you have a home birth. Mm -hmm. I was just so grateful to have my vaginal birth, but I know that other people, like some of my clients and that 
you know, it is a little bit disappointing when you don't get the the thing that you want at the end. Totally. Um, but then baby was cleared and she was fine. But then what had happened was I, it was all attention on me. My doula was like, oh, have you, has the placenta come out? Can you stand up? Can you get the placenta out? And things like that. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of blood in the pool. And um, well, sometimes and then, when it's in the pool, though, it looks like a lot because it like. It does look like a lot. And yeah. the other reason why I hired her was because she had experience with that, whereas I didn't have the experience. And I know that a lot of free birthers transfer in from blood loss mm. because they don't have the experience of knowing how to what stop it is normal or in water. That it looks like a lot, mm. but really it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the inexperience. And that's why it's really important to have wise people with you if that's what yes. you want or feeling confident in knowing that you like – Personally, I think it's probably better to tap into yourself and listen to how you feel rather Mm -hmm. than sometimes what you're seeing because I know from experience I can handle a lot more than some other people can and so what might be okay and acceptable for that person, like I'm a heavy bleeder for periods, for example, you know, maybe my body works a little bit different. So I think tapping into that intuition and knowing how Mm -hmm. you feel and I think people know if they feel like crap or if they feel pretty good. But, yes, then another ambulance was called and another ambulance and another ambulance. And oh. the reason, yeah, they had this protocol that if I'd lost a certain amount, they had to give me a bag of bloods before I came into hospital, even though I live five or seven minutes from the hospital. Mm. And they were just waiting for this one ambulance to come that had my blood type on board. Mm. and then they had to give it to me. And then eventually like two hours later, we got to the hospital. And by this point, I'm pretty much passing out. So you were bleeding. I was bleeding, but they called my doula to ask her how much blood loss there was. Hmm. They didn't ask the ambulance, which they were there and they saw. So I don't really know how much blood I lost. I feel like I lost probably the same as I did with my second baby because they said, that's what they said. That's what she said. My doula said, I think she's lost about three liters and mm. or two liters or three liters. And when I got into hospital, they were like, they were waiting for me. They were ready. And, and straight away they tried to do the removal without any medication, just putting the their placenta. hand up. Yes. Putting the hand up my vagina mm. and trying to manually Extract remove it, it. Mm-hmm. which was very, very painful. It felt like a shovel going in and coming out and, I said, like after three attempts, I said, stop, I do not consent to this. And then she said, okay, fine, because I was screaming before that. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't matter because all they listen to is the, the actual legal words. I do not consent. I want to be put under and go like I want surgery. I want mm-hmm. to go under. I did not want to be awake for this. I knew after my last experience I was just out. Mm-hmm. And they said, that's like the anesthesiologist was like, I can do that. I'm more than happy to do that. And I was like, yes, that is amazing. I was so happy that this one was willing to put me under and agreed that it was safe for me to do. And I signed the waiver of what could happen. I could lose my uterus. I could have this, that. And I woke up in ICU and they said, because my blood pressure dropped so low, I think because of the blood loss, I, I went into ICU and I think it's standard practice to stay there for 12 hours and then they, if you do fine in that period of time, they then move you on to that room with a midwife for an hour. And then if you grad, I call it graduation, 
you graduate that room and then I graduated that one and then I was just in with maternity and I was just treated like everyone else. But this time I was back at the first hospital, so sharing a room, and this time I was hot gossip of the hospital Oh, because I'm the free birther who came in, had a vaginal birth on my own after how many surgeries? All the things, yeah. All the things, big baby, high BMI. And I just like most 99% of them were pretty supportive. And then there was a few that were kind of like midwives who were a bit like, yeah, well, you were so lucky that you didn't tear. You were so lucky this didn't happen. And one went up to my husband and said, promise me, you tell me you never do something silly like that again. And he was just like so shocked that this weird old lady came up to him and was telling us what we should be doing. And he just looked at her and he said in his mind, no, I'm not going to say anything back Um, to her. I'm just going to let it go. She'd been spending the whole time like bitching about her daughter so that she was just one of these people uh, about her future birth choices and mothering choices. So she wasn't a lovely lady anyways. But they went above and beyond to really support me and listen to me. And I went along with some of their crazy things. They wanted to do all these tests on me and stuff. They were very, like, the thing is, they're very fearful. Like, Um, I said, I've got, I said, can I just have another bag of bloods? I'm really tired. I know from experience this is going to happen again. mm -hmm. And they said, oh, well, we better do all these tests on you just to make sure because you could die overnight, they said. Oh, my (laughs) you could have a clot in your you could have a clot in your lungs. So I had a heart test, a lung test, and the fluids come through my body. I had all the things done. It must have all came back good because they gave they, they eventually said, Okay, look, we'll give you an eye and transfusion. <laughs> and I said, as again, Ashley knows what's right for her body, right? But I'll go mm-hmm. along with your crazy test, which at the time was in the, the middle of the night. So in the time where I was supposed to be getting sleep. Yeah. I'm getting wheeled across the hospital, having all these tests to satisfy them. But I understand they think that I am a crazy free birther. So they're really worried about me because I didn't get prenatal care, even mm-hmm. though I had two scans and blood tests throughout. I had all the things that you'd pretty much do. Maybe I didn't just didn't have the blood pressure readings, mm. uh, which is really interesting that they view that in such a way. And then my baby was in special care because my husband came in and the it's very common practice for them to take the baby for a home birther or a free birther. They will always try to take that baby into special care because they don't know what prenatal care the baby had. What? I didn't know it at the time, but now that I've interviewed so many people on my podcast and I've spoken to people in the community, I realize it's quite normal practice and they are legitimately very fearful for that baby. They are on the opposite side of the fence. They think that prenatal care is like, if you don't have it, your baby's going to be deformed. Mm-hmm. Um, but prenatal care is nothing. Like, if if anything, prenatal care for me was anxiety-driven, negative, and, mm-hmm. you know, fearful. Shaming. Yeah, horrible. And it's just having a couple of scans and some blood work, which is what I had during the time. But she ended up going on CPAP because she had that laboured breathing, even though the ambulance said it was okay. When I've which led on to eventually she had um, mild jaundice, which we consented to. A she lot had of babies have jaundice. Yeah, so we uh, I consented to her going under the the lights, and I regret some of the stuff. I didn't know 
And so they don't practice informed consent a lot of the time. They just kind of do what they're doing with the babies. And then it was like, oh, can I breastfeed my baby? And then I had to get myself to the special care unit, mm-hmm. breastfeed my baby. So I was just running myself ragged yeah. trying to breastfeed. And it was a it was an interesting experience. And I feel like this is the positive takeaway. It's like, okay, so you've done all these things now. Now you can help so many more people because you've lived through all of these experiences and you understand how challenging it can be. And also you can inform people. So now you know how to prepare yourself. Like my audience can prepare themselves like birth planning and special care planning, special nursery. Also, how do you advocate if you end up in that situation Mm -hmm. that you can say no, yes, that these are the things they're probably going to recommend and that sort of thing. That's the positive takeaway I take from that experience. Yeah. I also feel like I really healed myself with the hospital itself from okay. the second birth because they treated me with respect and they really wanted to. I just, I didn't feel, I just felt like they actually cared about me. Like some of them had a few tears and I thought, well, you are a human. Like yeah. that's all I ever wanted. I just wanted you to listen to me and respect me. And if, yeah. if, if you did that, I would come back in birth in this space. Mm-hmm. I would not now, but I mean, I would want to get into the birthing pool. If you respected me to do some of the things, mm-hmm. then it would be a safe space for me. But if you're going to be the opposite, you're not going to be on my side, then yeah. I can't feel safe with you. And I understand their fear. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it from their point of view, but I think they need to spend some time thinking, thinking about, about it and seeing it from ours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And so if they heard our stories and they really understood that it's not just like a baby's life that matters, it's the fact that this woman is going to carry this for the rest of her life yes. and it's going to shape her motherhood journey and it's going to dictate the kind of person that she's going to be in 10 to 20 years because some women can end up like depressed. They could not look after their child. They you know, bonding Even issues for 10 deeper. years. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't understand that. When I say to them, like, a healthy baby's not acceptable, I was always going to have a healthy baby, but you've done this to me. They do not understand trauma and they do not understand human, human to connection. That's not their field. That's not what they signed up for. And it's not how they treat each other and it's not how they're treated. They're run ragged yep. in the hospital system and their culture is like, I've worked for 50 hours this week and I'm doing another two days. And it's like, who's the biggest, strongest and badass? Like who's Mm -hmm. had the most, done the most surgeries on the most complicated people? That is their culture and for a lot of them. And so it's it's like two competing things. I work with people and I care about hearts and humans and stories and I care about how people feel Mm-hmm. And they are like more masculine. They don't care about how people feel. They care about people living an outcome. and mm-hmm. an outcome that they know that they're not getting in trouble from with their insurance as well. And it's really shame on the insurance companies as well for supporting and encouraging that because they're, they're the driving force. These people can't practice without insurance. And the only way they can feel safe is by doing surgeries on people, which is more dangerous than vaginal birth. I don't understand it but that's the driving force. So, you know, it's like a pretty insidious culture to start with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, I just made a post the other day about like safe mom or, you know, safe and healthy baby and mom, right? Like that's all that matters, right? Yeah. And it's just, it's so not right. It's so wrong. Like 
of course, everybody wants a healthy baby and a healthy mom. Of course. Yes. But there's so much more to it. And uh, I love that. I wish that we could somehow like get in front of providers and say like, listen, listen to these people's stories. Listen to how this experience affected them or this, what this did for them, you know? Cause like I said, yeah, they're driven in other ways. And yeah, I mean, they, they love and care for the patient the best they can, and they want them to have a good, healthy baby and mom, but they do, they, they have these blinders on and they sometimes look past the experience and what trauma things like sometimes it's not even things being done. It just things being said, you know, or things not being done and being left alone. And yeah, there's just, yeah, there's so much, so much. The the, the thing is that I've been grappling with lately is that I did listen to an obstetrician who who started listening to Dr. Rachel Reed and she started to realize some of the stuff that she'd been doing is actually traumatizing and hurting mm-hmm. people and babies. And Dr. Reed talks about this because she teaches midwives and it's like, this is how we were trained in hospital. This is how we were trained in, in university, but this is all wrong. And this is why it's all wrong because it's based on this kind of birth. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I have to take responsibility that I've caused harm when I thought I was causing, when I thought I was helping. Yes. How do you, how do you take responsibility of that, knowing that potentially hundreds of outcomes, poor outcomes, have happened that you're responsible for? That alone is so heavy. And like in our society, people can't deal with the smallest of things, mm-hmm. let alone that mammoth responsibility. We don't even know how to deal with things. We're not even allowed to have, feel things, right? Who are they mm-hmm. going to turn to to even debrief without being like dismissed or told that you know? No, Mm -hmm. you haven't done anything wrong. You're a doctor, you know, in our society. Mm -hmm. So there's so many steps that need to happen, but even a few of them, like now this obstetrician, she's like training other obstetricians and talking about it. So they're going to listen and respect to her, her much Mm -hmm. more than a midwife, like just a stinky old midwife. (laughs) What do they say? A a witch, you know, I see it in the newspapers. She hypnobirthing, it's all witchcraft or (laughs) hocus pocus, you know, like the degrading things to try to, bring it down as if it's a mockery, just nothing, and we're doing medical science. But there's so many steps and so many things. But if you can get past that and work through that, then you've got to completely change how you practice. Mm -hmm. And then you need to, at that point, change everything you do and how you practice. And then you're the black sheep in your establishment. You might go from like the top surgeon to maybe you're doing VBACs or you're doing vaginal birth now. And that's weird. Like, yeah, you know, you, you got to transform yourself. Uh-huh. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of steps. It doesn't mean that people can't make small changes and people yeah. can't make positive impact because right. even just having a conversation and saying, look, you know what? I think you should go see this midwife. You might be losing clients but in right. America, for example, with private people, but you go, I'm not really happy to take on it in my career, but I know a I know midwife. someone that will, yeah. Yeah, and then you, and then that midwife sends the surgery people to you, you know. I think you'll be better with this surgeon. This surgeon prefers doing mm-hmm. this and they'll do more medical, but they'll help you have a vaginal birth. But there are some yeah. of those things as small steps to really, you know, start rather than, oh, I don't agree with home birth, I don't agree with midwife birth, explore and mm-hmm. open your eyes, you know. 
obviously those people aren't listening to this podcast now. So, you know, that's not really beneficial for them, but it's just some thoughts that I've been having, you know, when I'm trying to think on the bigger picture, how can we make a change? How and I think make a change, yeah. podcasts like this, like you changed my life. It was the mm. planting a seed to opportunity. And I know just from listening to a podcast, like women say to me, oh, because of your podcast, I had my free birth at home. And it's like, I, I had this amazing birth and I'm healed or uh, it was a positive thing. And I didn't have anyone calling CPS on me or telling me this was going to happen. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm so happy for you that, I mean, it is, it is a in- labor intensive thing to do podcasts, right? You know yourself, mm-hmm. it, it is a labor intensive <laughs> thing, but if it's the little piece of, you know, how we can help trend. And I think your yeah. podcast trend like paved the way for V-backs and really open that space up. And now there's so many more resources out there and more people supporting and, mm-hmm. you know, jewelers supporting in that space and knowing and yep. stuff. So it really does make a difference, I feel. And I know that we were discussing before that, yeah, what's the next level and what can we do even further, which is exciting. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm obsessed with this podcast and can't wait to re-listen to it. <laughs> can I just say, uh, you were, de- you're just a delight and I am so grateful for you being here and sharing your stories. Um, you've been through a lot. You've been through a lot and you've learned a lot and you've come a long way and here you are inspiring people, educating people, helping people process and, and learn. So I want, if you wouldn't mind, tell, first of all, like tell people where to find your podcast and your Instagram, and then talk a little bit more, or I guess share more of what you do and where they can find you. Sure. So my podcast I created when I was about five or six months pregnant. And the reason I created it was because I wanted to listen to home birth stories. I was Mm -hmm. like, I heard feedback. I listened to all the home birth stories. I was like, no, I need now I need home birth and free birth VBAC stories. So it was mm-hmm. a very selfish mission. And then I was able to connect with people that I was like, who I considered birth experts. Mm-hmm. And I could ask them all the questions for my podcast, but really for me. And it's called the VBAC Home Birth Stories podcast. And you can listen to it on all the podcast all the players. Platforms. Yeah, all the platforms. And my Instagram handle is Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y-L winning. And I'm sure you'll link it anyways. Uh And I work with women virtually all over the world who are having home births and free births. Usually women who are having like second, third babies who have had traumatic experiences or uh, cesareans previously. Usually the women connect with something about my story, they've got a special scar or or had a cesarean before or something, Mm -hmm. or maybe they're a bigger woman or highly sensitive. My field is really working in like high touch with my clients because after my experience, I was like, I really want other people to have the same support as me. And I hid behind the fact that I was weak and I really wasn't embracing that about me. And I really started to embrace that you know what, just because I value emotional support and connection doesn't mean I'm the only person in the world that needs that. And now I'm like connecting with so many highly emotional, highly sensitive women and empathic women who get really anxious in the mind and they overthink things. So what we can do a lot of the time is we're overthinking our choices and we're overthinking Mm -hmm. the things that are happening and we're overanalyzing and we're overplanning and we're procrastinating and we're 
living in fear and sometimes that can spiral out of control where it completely consumes your life. Yeah. And by having someone say, like having someone that you know is safe to talk to about all of your fears deeply, that isn't going to make you feel like an inconvenience that is available for you all the time because a lot of doulas are like, 24-7 support, right? Uh, yeah, but don't <laughs> I, really call me. <laughs> yeah, and then you message them and it's like a week before they get back to you and you're like, uh, you feel so unloved, unsupported. Yeah. And so I really set clear boundaries with my clients and let them know every Monday I'm going to message you so that they know every Monday, if you don't get back to me, that's cool. I know you're a pregnant person, right? Don't mm-hmm. ever feel because my client's they also like are worried, like, oh, I better get back to Ashley, you know, because right. they're highly sensitive. So I say, don't stress. I'm here to support you. It's not mm-hmm. the other way around, right? Don't worry about me. I'm looking mm, after myself that. and yeah. I'm here to look after you. So it's having that high touch supporting connection. And we do like virtual sessions, like we're talking here, like every fortnight. And that's a space to unload everything, all your fears, mm-hmm. all your worries. We go through mindset stuff, but also... I find that the women talk about their partners getting on their nerves or their kids, their, you know, motherhood mm, stuff or yeah. work stuff. And so we work on like boundaries and mindset things and fear things. And we go into the evidence, we go into physiological birth and it's a whole mixture of like motherhood. It's like a full circle of things. And then we get them prepared for their postpartum too, because I trained as a postpartum doula. And I find that my clients, even though they've had a postpartum, they often lack the ability to reach out to the network because they're highly sensitive to mm-hmm. say, can you please help me with this? Can you please help me with that? Can you look after my child? And so I, I, I basically am like supporting them as they grow the strength, the mm-hmm. way that I was supported to really put myself out there and be vulnerable and create the life that I want. And that's what I kind of see is like the starting foundations of a woman truly being herself like loving herself and advocating for the things she wants. And then eventually I hope that she takes those skills and nurtures them to be the person that she wants to be and finds the oh, voice and everything. I love that. Oh, mm-hmm. such amazing things that you are doing. You're such an amazing resource. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> Interested in sharing your VBAC story on the podcast? Submit your story at thevbacklink.com slash share. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to thevbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.